we continue our series in John's Gospel, if you will turn to chapter 12, please. <clears throat> I'm going to read the passage and then pray. I, it's been one of those weeks where my mind has been distracted, and I'm sure... You have struggled with distractions on your own, and I want us, myself included, to be able to draw near to the Lord. Chapter 12, starting in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they, could, they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge." The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Father, there, there sits before you this morning a room full of your children, men and women that you call saints, and as one who stands before you, the same. And yet, Lord, all of us are aware of our distractions, we're aware of our tiredness, we are aware of the very many things that could keep our minds from hearing and seeing and understanding. Lord, we want to believe your message this morning. And so we simply cry out for grace and for understanding and for your spirits working. Lord, we desire to meet with you this morning. We desire to draw near to you this morning. Lord, like Isaiah, we desire to see your glory more than anything. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves and ask for help and trust with the highest confidence that you will be faithful to your word and to your church that you love. So we thank you in Jesus' name. <clears throat> in April, 
1912, Cyril Evans was working as a telegraph operator on board the SS Californian on a voyage across the Atlantic. On the night of April 14, 1912, the captain of the Californian, Stanley Lord, brought the ship to a halt as it had entered a wide ice field filled with many large icebergs. Lord came into the wireless operator's room and ordered Evans to warn other ships in the area of the ice. Evans proceeded to do just that, sending out wireless warnings to other ships in the area that they were approaching ice. In the wireless room aboard the Titanic, operators Jack Phillips and Harold Bride were trying to get through a backlog of private messages they were to send from the ship to the United States, the destination of the Titanic, on her maiden voyage. Phillips received Evans' ice warning message, but because the Californian was so close to the Titanic and Evans had set his, his set turned to full power, he almost blew the headset off of Phillips' head. An angry Phillips told him to get off, and Phillips never passed along the ice warning to the bridge or the ship's captain. The inability of the Titanic crew to heed the warning that came their way resulted in a tragic loss of life and property of epic proportions. As the book of signs comes to a close as we read these last few verses of chapter 12. We've been traveling with John for more than two years as he narrates Jesus' incarnation, his life, his ministry, and soon narrating his death. And chapter 12 brings that ministry to a close. The, the signs are done, and throughout these 12 chapters, not only have signs been done, but warnings have come forth. Pleadings have come forth. Warnings of danger for those who do not believe have been proclaimed. But now they're over and the final work is about to happen. All culminating in Jesus being crucified and God crushing Jesus for our sin. Now, as John writes these last words of chapter 12, he is not a dispassionate observer or writer. He himself is stunned by the unbelief that he sees. How can so many not believe after so many signs? Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. Now, John records in 20, 30, and 31 that there were so many signs that they could not all be recorded, but that these signs were given so that these folks might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing they might find life in his name. And so when John says here there were so many signs, he only recorded seven. But he knows because he was there how many more signs were brought. And it is a stunning commentary by John. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. For more than two years, Jesus warned and pleaded with both his followers and his opponents that the outcome of believing of not believing or and rejecting him as the son of god was horrific but he also told them that the outcome of believing that the outcome of trusting in christ the outcome of giving all to the Lord had eternal benefits, had benefits beyond their imagination. 
We read about that in chapter 1. To all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. A wonderful benefit. 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Warning after warning leading up to this last moment of Jesus' public ministry. Because these words here are the final public words that Jesus utters. His, his ministry is over publicly. Now these last few days are all about his time with the disciples and all about his crucifixion. These last few days center on that alone. And John 12, 36 records Jesus' final words that are both wonderful and dreadful at the same time. These final words are wonderful because they consist of an invitation to light. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. But they're also words that are dreadful because to those who reject them, who reject Jesus's offer of light and look at him with an unbelieving heart will remain in darkness. Jesus, in his love and mercy, in verse 36, pleads with them, while you have the light, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, says this. This verse says so much about Jesus' heart. He did not want his final words to be only a warning about judgment alone, but words that flow with the sweet offer of his grace to those who believe. But the time, has, the time was over. And, and John John gives us this, this brief statement to let us know that the light has gone. That judgment literally has begun. In verse 36, part 2, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This is a living parable of what God's judgment will be. Jesus is acting out the warning he just pronounced. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you will become sons of light. But now he's hidden himself. He's nowhere to be found. Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Jesus at this moment cannot be found. It is a living warning, a living parable of what it means to not have Christ there. And it is a living warning. It is a living demonstration of what eternity can be like without Christ. He hid himself. You and I both know what it is like when it feels like God has hidden himself from us for just a moment. When we are going through a serious challenge, a trial, a suffering, where it seems like God has just does not exist at that moment. We know what it's like to feel as though God is hiding behind an iron curtain and our prayers are just bouncing off and we wonder, has God abandoned me? And this isn't God living behind a frowning providence. This is God unavailable. This is God not found. Unbelief is the most serious of sins and a constant danger 
to all of us. If If we're not careful, we will find ourselves walking on the thin ice of unbelief, which eventually will plunge us into the freezing waters of a hardened heart. Unbelief is is like thin ice. And eventually it gets so thin, we plunge. And in those plunging waters, our hearts become harder still. The title of my message is So Many Signs. So Many Signs. And my proposition this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. If you guard your heart from unbelief, you will experience the joy of a remarkable salvation. If you guard your heart from unbelief, you will experience the joy of a remarkable salvation. Unbelief gradually hardens the heart. But faith in Christ leads to life. We read through these 12 chapters. We see each step of the way the hardening of the hearts of those who were Jesus' opponents. And eventually their unbelief became so pronounced that their hardened hearts rejected, ignored, dismissed all the signs Jesus had done. Two points this morning. The first one is a remarkable unbelief. A remarkable unbelief. These verses, verses 36 through 43, these verses serve as a warning of the consequences to rejecting and not believing in Christ. It is remarkable that after all that Jesus has said and done, the feeding of the 5,000, the the healing of the official's son, the, the blind man seeing, the lame man walking, the water being turned into wine, Lazarus rising from the dead, all of these signs and all of the words that Jesus spoke, after all of this, they still did not believe in him. That is a remarkable unbelief. How astonishing it is that after so many signs and wonders that they cannot believe he is the Son of God, the Messiah. How much more could he do? The Father sent him into the world. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory in his miracles. We have seen and heard from him. And why do these people fail to see? They don't see Because as John teaches us here and as he quotes Isaiah, they don't see because their hearts have always been hard. And because God in his sovereign, mysterious plan and wisdom has hardened their hearts. I am, I'm getting into deep water here. When I went scuba diving in the summer, we were down about 40 feet. And it was quite amazing to be down so far. And when you come up, you actually have to stop along the way and wait so that your, your nitrogen and oxygen and all the appropriate things can be settled before, otherwise you can get in trouble. I am... I'm coming up, and uh, I'm coming up slowly, and it is, 
it's frightening because basically they tell you your brain will explode if you go too fast, you know, and so don't do that. Um, to talk about the mystery of salvation in God's sovereignty is, I'm not sure when I can come up for air on this one. But we're going to try and make our way there. Unbelief is a recurring theme in Scripture, and especially in John's Gospel. And in verse 38, he turns to Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant to help us understand this unbelief. He begins the suffering servant chapter by recounting the ongoing unbelief of the Israelites. Look at verse 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, Isaiah... This is from Isaiah 53. It is about the suffering servant. And Isaiah is referring to Jesus. Now he's referring to Jesus, the Jesus he saw in chapter 6 when he encountered the Lord. I saw the Lord seated on the temple, his train his robe, the, robe, the train of his robe throughout the temple. Isaiah saw the Lord. And here he is writing this chapter on the suffering servant. And he is basically saying, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Isaiah had prophesied. When Isaiah was commissioned in chapter 6, he was commissioned to go to a people who God said their hearts would already be hard. And the more you preach to them, Isaiah, the harder their hearts will become. Not the most endearing commissioning. I'm sending you to a people who won't listen to what you say and in fact will get angrier at you than they already are and it will get worse. And Isaiah prophesies here, Lord, who has believed what he had heard from us? Who's believed the words of Jesus, his message, no one. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, speaking from Deuteronomy, where the arm of the Lord heals. Isaiah is quoting Deuteronomy. John is quoting Isaiah. And the arm of the Lord simply is the work of God. It's the work of the Lord. The power of God demonstrated. And after the, the words of God and the power, the arm of God... The problem is unbelief, a remarkable unbelief. How much more does God need to do? Oh, and doesn't that happen in our own lives? When we're facing a situation we have no answers for, we're facing suffering that we cannot alleviate ourselves from, we are facing relational breaks that seem to never be healed. We face a discouragement or even a depression that just seems to never go away. And what often are we tempted to do? God's not there. I don't see God in any of this. How could God be in any of this? Unbelief isn't limited to unbelievers. It's a recurring struggle for Christians. And the language of unbelief is in the fabric of our culture. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe that happened. That is unbelievable. A few years back, I was in Burma on a medical team. We were driving into a very remote part of the Irrawaddy Delta. We were in a van. There were seven of us with medicines. And, um, and we had a Burmese driver driving the van. And we were probably, I mean, we were... 30, 40 miles into this remote area, heading towards a village. And we get to this, this small river. 
and this small river has a bamboo bridge with just one board for each tire. It's about a 15-foot span. And we stop right there, and the driver gets out and says in broken English, I'm not going over that bridge. Now, we're probably another five to eight miles from the village, and we can't carry all of these medicines. We have a couple of hundred pounds of medicines, personnel. We can't do all that. And no amount of pleading, no amount of cajoling, no amount of threats would get that man to drive that van over that bridge. So I just cleared everybody out of the van, and I got in the driver's seat, and I backed up, and I just did my best Back to the Future imitation. (laughs) 1.21 gigawatts of power, and we were going over the bridge. I figured the faster I went, the less the wheels would touch the bridge. And it worked. And just to look at the faces of everybody on the other side of the, who were not even willing to walk over the bridge, they're just going, that's unbelievable. I can't believe you did that. Yeah, well, neither will Marilyn and don't tell her. These aren't the kind of things that she wants to know. We have a theology of unbelief written into the very fabric of our society. And we use those words all the time. But the fabric of unbelief, that culture of unbelief, is the very thing that can undermine our relationship with the Lord, that can hinder our relationship with the Lord, that can cause us to walk on thin ice and harden our hearts. Because the more we believe that God is not with us, the harder our hearts become towards Him. And the further we drift away from Him. But what is unbelief? What makes unbelief here so remarkable? What is it and how do we define unbelief? And this, let me throw out a few thoughts to you on that. Unbelief is a subtle view that God is not sovereign. That he isn't really in control of what I am walking through. It is a subtle questioning of God's authority. Oh, unbelief was at the very beginning of this entire mess that we find ourselves in. Did God say? Weren't those the words of the serpent to Eve? Did God say? Do you really believe? It's also a wavering belief that possibly God is not good. It is a fear that God is not powerful. It is an arrogant belief in ourselves that we know better. And it can be a charge against God's character that he does not love us. Brothers and sisters, there's not a person in this room that at one time or another is bat- you're battling unbelief. As a Christian, it's still possible to have unbelief in your heart. And if you don't fight it, if you don't eradicate it, it will, t- over time, subtly and gradually harden your heart. Let me give you some warning signs of a hardened heart. You lack joy. You come in here on Sunday morning and it is more of an obligation than it is a joy to gather with God's people and to sing and to draw near to the Lord because when you try to draw near to the Lord, He's nowhere to be found. Hardening heart lacks hope. I've waited, I've prayed, I've tried. How long, O Lord? I've given you so much time. A hardened heart lacks desire for time with God. 
it's much easier to be distracted by other things than it is to read God's word, which speaks to me and addresses in me my unbelief. A hardened heart often finds fault with God. You put me here. Which is the strange, contradictory thinking of someone because in one moment they're not sure he's sovereign and in another moment, you put me here. Well, which is it? A hard heart often finds fault with others. And finally, a hard heart becomes desensitized to sin. I have seen Christian friends struggle with unbelief. I've watched them grow hard in their hearts and watch their lives drift away from the faith. And the warning is that if we harden our hearts towards the Lord, Isaiah is telling us here, John is telling us here, he will eventually harden our hearts even, even more. In quoting Isaiah's prophecy, John is also showing the terrifying consequences of unbelief. Verse 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, the light departed and hid himself from them. The consequence of unbelief is the consequence of judgment. That the light is no longer among you. You walk in darkness. You do not know where you are going. Jesus withdrew for a final time. He was not seen in a public forum, in a public ministry setting. He was not seen until he was crucified. And grace was no longer available. Richard Phillips says this, The time comes for unbelievers when the gospel is no longer available to believe. This time might come with death, but could also come when their hearts become so hardened through practiced unbelief, they are no longer able to believe. The consequence of a hardening heart is another terrifying consequence. Romans, eight, Romans 1, eight, 18 through 32, three times it says that the Lord gave them over. The more they dove into sin, the more they expressed unbelief, the more they worshiped a, a creature rather than the creator, the more that they expressed unbelief towards God, the deeper and harder their sin became and the hardening of their heart to the point where God gave them over to a depraved mind. John tells us this at the beginning of chapter 1 when he says, He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And then the consequence of being blinded by God Look at verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. It's hard to understand this, this tension between the sovereignty of God and his role in our regeneration, our being saved and born again, and the responsibility of man. In fact, in Romans 9, chapter 9 to chapter 11, Paul addresses this because people are crying out, it's not fair. How can God hold us responsible? 
How can he hold us responsible for not coming to him if he doesn't do what he said in John 6, 44? No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. But what they miss from the very beginning is from the moment of birth, they were already unbelievers. From the moment of birth, their hearts were already hard towards the Lord. From the moment of birth, they were already in desperate need of salvation and rescue from the wrath of God. This is a challenging mystery in God's sovereign purposes. He blinds their eyes. He hardens their hearts. How do we understand this? Well, first, God, God planned that the Jews would reject Jesus and crucify him. That was God's plan. God planned that would happen. This was God's providential purpose being played out. If, if they did not do this, if the Jews did not express unbelief, if the Jews did not harden their heart, if they did not reject Jesus and then crucify him, most likely you wouldn't be sitting here. Because if, if the Jewish people had received him, who knows if the word would have gone out to the Gentile world. As someone who is Jewish, I can say, we messed up. If we hadn't messed up, you probably wouldn't be sitting here. The Jews had not, if the Jews had accepted Jesus, the gospel may not have gone out to the Gentile world. Secondly, the, the gospel has two sides. It has eternal judgment and it has eternal life. Two sides. Eternal judgment, it's a two-edged sword. Leon Morris says this, those unwilling to believe become progressively unable to believe. God has decreed that those who act this way have their eyes blinded and their hearts hardened. They have hardened their hearts and God just hardens their hearts even more. Thirdly, <clears throat> justice. God has given over the Jews to judicial blindness. A blindness for their <clears throat> excuse me, long, continued, and obstinate rejecting of his warnings. And the consequence of eternal life. Those are the consequences that come with hardening our hearts and unbelief. Judgment, a hard heart, blindness, eternal judgment. And interestingly, John closes this part out with this, these comments. For verse 42, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. For the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. Well, you remember in John 2.24, when people said that they believed in Jesus, and his response to that was, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. <laughs> and in John 5.44, he makes another comment very connected with this verse where they love the glory of men rather than the glory of God. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? And that's exactly what these men have done. Most commentators don't believe that these men were genuinely born again, that their belief was not true because their hearts were hard. They had a love for something other than Jesus that led them into darkness. A genuine believer must stand for Christ no matter the cost. Matthew 16, if you do not confess me before men, I will not confess you before the Father. This is a remarkable, remarkable, remarkable unbelief. An unbelief so hardened. 
that they will not stand for Christ. During the Boxer Rebellion from 1899 to 1900, extreme nationalist Chinese fomented a campaign of terror against officials of foreign governments, Christian missionaries, and even Chinese Christians. After they surrounded a certain mission station, they sealed all exits except one. They placed a cross in the dirt in front of the opened gate and told the missionaries and students that anyone who walked out and trampled the cross would be spared. According to reports, the first seven students who departed trampled the cross and were sent on their way. The eighth student, a young girl, approached the cross, knelt down, prayed for strength, carefully walked around the cross, and was immediately shot to death. The remaining 92 students, strengthened by that girl's courageous example, also walked around the cross to their deaths. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What makes unbelief so remarkable is that it can lead us to a place to deny Christ. But John doesn't leave us there. There is also a remarkable salvation. The most stunning event. Look at verse 44. And Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. What a, what a stunning event. The incarnation who God sent Jesus. The, the incarnation is the foundation of all that we believe in. Without the incarnation, there is no perfect life. Without the incarnation, there is no crucifixion. Without the incarnation, there is no resurrection. Without the car- incarnation, there is no ascension. Without the incarnation, there is no return of Christ. Without the incarnation, there is no salvation. It is a remarkable salvation because God sent his son. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. By knowing Jesus, we know the Father. By seeing Jesus, we see the Father. We have a relationship with the Father. Only Jesus could show us the Father. Only Jesus. Last Saturday night, for about two and a half hours, all I did was run up and down the steps in my home. Because for two and a half hours, the doorbell rang. And little people dressed in weird things were asking for candy. They were all image bearers. But no one Not one person who came to my tour was dressed like God. No God costumes for sale. No image bearer. No Moseses. No Jesuses. None came to the door. And no one could. Because there's only one There's only one who bears the image of God. He is the image. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father and all to leading us to a remarkable salvation. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I didn't come into the world to judge, but to save the world. Jesus came to save us. Now, later he stands as judge, but he didn't come to judge. He came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. We are called the children of God if we believe in him. John 1.12, John opens his gospel with these wonderful words, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You are a child of God. Knowing Christ means knowing the Father. Loving Christ means loving the Father. Receiving Christ means receiving the Father. And being with Christ means being with the Father. A remarkable salvation that once objects of wrath were now children of God. Jesus was sent that we might see the Father. He was sent that we might believe He did these signs that whoever would believe in him might have eternal life. If you guard your heart from unbelief, you will experience the joy of remarkable salvation, a joy of being able to live in the presence of God, a joy of being able to commune with God, a joy of being able to know God, a joy of being cared for by God. That is a remarkable salvation. Proverbs 4.23 tells us, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. If we do not guard our hearts, the the tragedy is we, we travel on the thin ice of unbelief that leads to a hardened heart. How great then is the tragedy of unbelief. But listen, our battle against unbelief is not a battle against flesh and blood. It is one against a formidable enemy who lies and who deceives and says to you, did God say... Did God say he would provide for you? Did God say that you wouldn't suffer? Did God say? And he lies. But we are not alone. And we are not helpless. God has given us his spirit. I love the... Didn't know that Devin was going to play this song this morning. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe that you would not believe. His craft and his power are great and he is armed with cruel hate and on earth is not his equal. And did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing were not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing, he sent me. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name from age to age the same. He must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God 
has willed. His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And right now, the best words, the best line in this entire song, one little word shall fail him. Jesus. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is for ever. Lord, help us to fight the fight of faith. Help us to believe what is true about you. Help us to choose to live for your glory and not the glory of men. Help us not to fear rejection from the world, but to fear rejection from you. Help us to boldly speak your words, knowing that we are speaking with your authority and power. Oh, God, help us to be aware more of this remarkable salvation than the unbelief that we can battle from time to time. Oh, Lord, thank you for sending your spirit that we could abideth still. In Jesus' name, amen.